0: All right, since it's January the 1st, 2023, this will be the first Bible study exercise for this new year, and it'll be a continuation on our study on fear this morning. We completed our study on Matthew 14 by, well, for those listening to the podcast, repeating a lot of what I've already said, but really trying to clarify it in my own mind tonight, We move on, and uh, I don't know which direction we're going to go, but I brought plenty of books to see which direction I would like this to go. So we're going to see. So here's what I need you to do. If you have your Bible, turn it to Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3. So I thought, if I have to introduce a study that's going to be in Zephaniah... It would be much easier probably to do it here in this setting than to do it in any other setting. So hopefully this will be beneficial for all of us, all right? So Zephaniah chapter 3. Now, what we're going to do is I'm going to I'm just go with how the, the curriculum has it, which basically they just give us the text first, right? So we're just going to read the text and just see where we are, right? So we're just going to read the text and like, if you were, and we're going to handle it. And the way I used to love it in Bible college or seminary for any preaching class, I like to just be handled, handed the text and like, okay, what do you do? What do you do? Or in hermeneutics class, here you go. What do you do? So before we look at anything else, because obviously, what would be the smart thing to do before we look at Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 20? What would be the smart thing to do? Okay, well, probably the first smart thing to do, we need a book background, right? Because if I start asking you some basic questions about Zephaniah, I wonder how well we would do on a test right now. Okay, right. So this is, this is, and I knew that because, I mean, let's be honest, most people don't know Zephaniah. So I figured that's one of the reasons I wanted to do it here tonight as well because I figured it would benefit all of us. But what we're going to do, even though that's what we should do, I've got Bible handbooks and dictionary Part of me wanted to just come in and say, hey, tonight, let's do a book background on Zephaniah. That's what I wanted to do, but I like changing it up. So we're just going to look at the text and see what happens. Right, what do you think? you think it's going to be beneficial? I have no idea. And it, does your Bibles break up the chapter like into paragraphs or into sections with ch- section titles? Okay, yours does. Uh, where, do, uh, the, but where does verse 9 fall? Does it fall into a section already... The beginning of a section, or is there another verse before it? Oh, it's the beginning of a section. Okay. Mine, the section, begins with verse 8. Okay. That's interesting. Okay, so I think most break it down is eight. Hey, the the curriculum just says start in verse nine, okay, which I don't know why, right? But I think most Bibles have broken down that eight begins the section. So we're going to begin with eight and, and and we're gonna add that to this, and we're gonna go all the way down to verse twenty, which puts us puts us puts us where? The end of the book. So literally, they want us to look at the very end of the book, which is always <laughs> you're always like, okay. Let's see what happens. All right, so we'll start in verse eight. Ze- uh, Ze- uh, I was going to say Zechariah, Zephaniah, chapter three, verse eight. What is your sections called in your Bibles? Since, for those that break it into a section. Uh, future judgment of the following, followed by... Okay. Oh, so now that now what what did his heading just do? Did anybody hear what his heading just did? It's interpreting. It's interpreting big time. Okay, it's interpreting big time because it's saying the future blessings will be under the Messiah, and that's probably going to put them where? Probably a millennial kingdom. So clearly it's coming from a. We can almost detect the eschatology of those who wrote those notes immediately, all right? All right, Scott, well, okay, dispensational, okay, it's Schofield, okay? So immediately I know where that's coming from. What is yours called? Oh, not over eight. Okay, interesting. Ultimate the ultimate supremacy of Israel. That's interesting. So, well, we'll, we'll see. Does, you, does yours? Yeah. Same, same. All right. Mine has to serve God with one consent. That's interesting. So, we're, we're going to see. All right. And Sarah just has paragraph divisions, but does it give it a title? Okay, what does that say? Wickedness of Jerusalem. Wickedness of Jerusalem. And then the next page is joy God's All right, joy of God's faith. All right. The, the, uh, so Sarah's and mine are far less interpretive. And Stephen is clearly straight up interpretive. It's Schofield, so that's, that's right there. And the, and the others are not... St- not too bad as well. But, but always just pay attention to that because what happens is you see that, then what do you do? You, read, you see it in the text because it's been suggested to you. So in some ways, I hate that. I, I like to have Bibles who have it, right? Because if I'm like, I don't know what's going on, then I can grab four or five Bibles and go, well, obviously this is what they think is going on. So I, I like having it, but I don't like seeing it at first. Right? I, I would prefer not to see it. But they want us to start at 9. I'm starting at 8. I, I know some of your Bibles start at 9. You, we'll, we'll see. We, let's read 8 and 9, and here's our first goal, goal tonight. is eight, nine, How is 8 and 9 connected, or are they completely disconnected, disjointed? All right, does that make sense? All right, so let's read verse 8. Well, immediately we have a, <laughs> immediately we have a problem, don't we? Therefore, okay, but where are we going Maybe that's why they didn't start in verse 8. Maybe that's why they're like, no, we can't go backwards. All right. Oh, true, good point. All right, so verse 8. Therefore, wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. All right, so (laughs) amen. What what a great way to start twenty twenty three, okay? That's that's a serious word of warning, is it not? Alright, and it seems to be directed at whom? You think that's directed at Israel? Oh well. Which part do you think is whole world will So it's a world. It's a worldwide focus. Well, yeah. Now therefore wait ye upon me. Who's he telling to wait? Okay, so that may be Israel, northern or southern kingdom. Judah or Israel? So if it's Jerusalem, if it's Jerusalem, who is that? Is it Jerusalem north? South. Okay, very good, good, good. We got it. This is always important stuff. So, so immediately, that seems to be there to wait, but then it's directed primarily at whom? The nations, it says, I may assemble the kingdoms. that He's going to bring judgment against everyone while who waits? Judah waits, it seems, right? Oh, well, we'll see if that holds water, but I'm just, I'm just I'm throwing out just initial thoughts. I'm just trying to walk us through it, so stay with me. all right? Then, verse 9. For then, all right? Now, for then, meaning some, it seems after the judgment upon the nations. Which, is that how you would read it? How does the NIV translate it? Uh-huh. All right, then. all right. So, clearly he's bringing all the nations to judge and then what's going to flow from that is I will turn the, to the people a pure language that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. This is interesting. Is it not? Now, Immediately, though, this is what I want you to to, to to detect. Just being handed this passage of Scripture leaves you really clueless and in the dark, does it not? I don't know what's going on, all right? So, he's going to purify the language, seemingly to mean he's going to do what? Bring just about one language. Now, it immediately begins to tell me... What, that, hey, this has got to be future because I don't think this has ever happened. Okay, right? right. Or it's got to be spiritualized. Okay, do I? Yeah. And then that that time they had one language and it got scattered. What were you going to say, Stephen? And serve him shoulder to shoulder. And serve him shoulder to shoulder. Okay, but it's going to it's going to be unity, one language, unified together. Yeah. All right. So some time of unity. All right. Now. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my supplants, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring mine offerings. All right, that's, what in the world's going on there? Anybody got an idea? All right, verse 11. In that day shall thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, Neither shall be a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Now, the reason I stress that is because this is a part of the seven-week study on fear. So that's why the text is being offered. But I I got a lot of clues what's going on. Now, immediately those verses that come right before, right there, including the verse that says about being afraid, what do you notice there? Is there something that jumps out at you before he mentions the word afraid? Starting at verse 12. There's a remnant, but clearly this is not anything the world has ever witnessed, right? Because what do we know about this uh, remnant? They shall do no iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall be deceitful tongue found in their mouth. Okay, clearly this is referencing something, I mean, There's no way this has happened in history, and if you try to say it's happened in the church, well, then it hasn't happened in a physical, a a, a, a practical way. So then you'd have to say it happened in a positional way. This would this would wreak all kinds of havoc on havoc on anyone's eschatology. All right, next, verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O Israel! Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem! The the Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will he will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singings. I will gather them that are sorrowful from the solemn assembly who are of thee to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at that time, I will undo all that afflict thee. I will save her that halteth and gather her that was driven out. I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time, I will bring you again even in the time that I gather you, for I will make you a name and a praise among all the people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. Those are some serious promises, are they not? Serious promises. Now, just for just to at least have a basic understanding, we, we know church history or the... The theology of Christianity is divided into two clear camps at this point, right? Some would interpret that all of these promises are for whom? The church, and they were all fulfilled spiritually. Not physically, it's not, it's not a physical captivity, it's not that this is all being done spiritually and it's in the church. Right? Now you've got to really spiritualize it, and not only that, you, you have to then would not not only would you have to spiritualize it, you would have to say a lot of these blessings happen positionally, not practically. Right? So that would be all church, 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 church. And of course the, the frustration the frustrating part of that perspective is it, it, you may think it makes it simple, but what's irritating is the curses still belong to whom? Israel and the blessings belong to whom? The church, which is kind of messed up, right? That's kind of frustrating. Now, the other side sees these promises as what way? Literal for Israel or Judah or whomever, and they will be fulfilled when? In the future. And why do we know they'll be fulfilled in the future if we go with that perspective? Because clearly there's no way to say this happened when they came out of Babylonian captivity. There's just no way. It would be ridiculous to even hint at that. Would we agree with that? Now, isn't it weird that this is the text for a study on fear? A a little bit. I'm a little bit baffled. Are you? not? I like that's because afraid is mentioned what one time. Okay, so what do you? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay, R twice. Okay, right, thank you. Thank you for catching that. All right, but it still seems like an odd text. And the reason it's an odd text is because of why. You got all this other stuff going on. You got all this other stuff going on, and you're like, "What in the world is happening?" Now, I'm going to give you what the curriculum, what they want us to take from this, right? Because they obviously are going to give us kind of like, "This is what we want you to see in the text." And then we'll walk a little bit into this and then maybe we'll back up and do a little bit of background and just kind of see how far we can get. All right. Are you ready? This is what they want us to see. This is session six. This is what they want us to see. They want us to see that instead of fear, that fear is to be replaced by something else. And this text tells us what that something else is. That here's fear, and fear must be replaced with something else. If you looked at that passage, what would you say fear should be replaced by? Looking at this passage of scripture. And give me the scripture you would use to support your view. Okay, you think fear should be replaced by obedience. Okay, well, I think we first have to find... Where where was the first time fear mentioned? The end of 13, right? Now, after he... What does it say about fear the first time? None shall make them afraid. All right? So this doesn't really tell us what fear should be replaced with, per se, but what is it telling us? That there's going to come a time that none is going to make you afraid, and this seems to have nothing to do with what we do, This has something to do that the reason they're not going to be fearful anymore because of something God is going to do. And the reason they don't need to be afraid is God is going to do something for them. And and because he's going to do something with them, does the text indicate what then will replace that fear? Because you, you have to look after fear is mentioned. You can't look before the fear is mentioned. You have to look after the fear is mentioned, right? So starting in verse 14 and following, God is. All he's going to tell them what he's going to do for them. Does he not start telling them what he's going to do for them? Right. Is that? Does that? I kind of. It kind of starts in. Does it start in thirteen or does it start in fourteen? Fourteen is where the after Okay. Oh, there we go. Okay. Well, what the ta- what the curriculum wants us to see is we should replace fear with joy. Now, this sounds good, but please note the way this gets flipped. I'm going to start reading from the curriculum and see if you notice something, all right? I kind of gave, I gave a little bit away. Just listen and see what happens, all right? All right, this is how it starts. I once ran a half marathon with a friend. I don't enjoy running, but I did like the thought of doing something I had never done before. As I reviewed the training schedule, I saw that most of the runs seemed feasible, it was the 10-mile run a few weeks before the race that unnerved me. Um, I was scared that I would not be able to finish and afraid that I might get hurt. On the day of the 10-mile run, my body ached all over. I wanted to stop, but my feet kept moving. After I finished, I just sat in my car with the seat leaned back because everything hurt. When I got home, the struggle of running was replaced with rest and the joy of eating with my family. We have days when we want to give up, but there is an end. We have a reason for hope, because one day we will rest and enjoy the table prepared for us by Jesus. The prophet Zephaniah reminds us that fear will be a thing of the past in the eternal kingdom of God. Now let's stop right here. Alright, there's some major issues going on with that paragraph, all right? First of all, what's the, what's the thing that, if you're reading this, and th- this is the stuff that drives me crazy, because this is the stuff handed to people for small groups and Sunday school classrooms all over the country. Oh, thank you. He, he, did he even mention Israel? Israel just got obliterated. Israel just got booted. Boom. This is about us! So that's the first problem. Second problem. Now, I know he changed it a little bit at the end, but it made me a little nervous because his illustration was about what? Finding rest and joy after what he did. This has nothing to do with them finding rest and joy because of what they do, but because of what God did. Now, why is this so significant? Because this, once again, fits with our law and gospel situation, where we have a tendency to even take a promise all about what God is going to do and turn it into something that we do. And, I, and I'm not saying he, he, he does say that here, no, Jesus is going to do it for us, but it's just very weird that he would start with an illustration about what he does. Hey, I'm going to give you an illustration about what I did. So that we'll learn how we can have joy in what God does. It just seems like an odd situation. It would seem that you would be like, Hey, I wanted to run this marathon and I couldn't do it. And someone came and ran it for me. And I found great joy that the marathon got ran because I made a promise that it would be right ra- and it was done for me. That would be a better illustration, but it became a bit an illustration about what this person did. Now, preachy, preachers love to do that. It's easy to fall into that trap. I just, I just want us to take note. Now, immediately after that, They give us, here we go. Here's what they say the point is. Are you ready? The fear will be a thing of the past and God's eternal kingdom. Now, here's what I find interesting. You've got to pay attention to this. In preaching, in teaching, someone can make a truthful point However, the text they use doesn't make that point. And if you make a truthful point, but the text you use doesn't prove that point, what does that make your point? It makes it fraudulent because you're saying that point came from a text that doesn't teach it. In other words, you can that, that is hard for people to, to say because, because whenever you confront people about this or that, like, hey, I want you to listen to the sermon from my church. And you'll be like, okay, well, the point was good, but that text doesn't teach that. And they'll be like, well, as long as the point was good. No! That's unacceptable. If the passage doesn't teach it, I don't care how true the point is. And that sermon, listen to me, as far as that sermon is concerned, that point is false. Because you can't have a point not supported from the scripture, which you said did. Now that's controversial, but I will stand by that. If you want to prove that point, go find the scripture that actually teaches it. So I will argue, is the point of this passage Fear will be a thing of the past in God's eternal kingdom. How would you summarize this passage? If you were to say, what is the point of this passage? What is the point of this passage, you think? Everybody look at it. Open book. If if you were in class today, and I walked into class and said, okay, you can go home as soon as you can tell me what the point of the passage is. If you get it wrong, you have to write a 25-page essay. You have to answer. <laughs> I can't say, "Well, I'm just not going to answer." You know. Doing a lot of, like, okay. What do you think? That's the point of the passage. We think the point of the passage is. Okay. Okay, tell me if you think this is acceptable. Well, let's do this. Grab a Bible dictionary. Let's do this. Grab a Bible dictionary. Here you go. I'll grab you one. Grab a Bible dictionary. Look up an entry for Zephaniah. All right. Look up the entry for Zephaniah. Zephaniah. 13.37, I'll just go ahead and use this dictionary as well. I was going to use a different resource, but that's okay. 13.37, all right, we're going to have a little bit of fun here. 13.37, and we want Zephaniah the book of, right? Not Zephaniah the person, but Zephaniah book of. And uh, how many people are named Zephaniah? Four, very good. Four people named Zephaniah, okay? But Zephaniah Book of. It is a brief prophetic book of the Old Testament that emphasizes the certainty of God's judgment and the preservation of a remnant, a small group of people who will continue to serve as God's faithful servants in the world. The book takes its title from its author, the prophet Zephaniah, whose name means The Lord Has Hidden. right now they don't identify the remnant do they they don't all right which is somewhat interesting they just kind of like here's just some group of people are going to be preserved right now if you read let's just go ahead and read uh, the structure of the book zephaniah contains only three short chapters but these chapters are filled with some of the most vivid pictures of god's judgment to be found in the entire bible or in the bible after a brief introduction of himself as God's spokesman, the prophet launches immediately into a description of God's approaching wrath. He betrays the great day of the Lord as a time of trouble and distress, darkness and gloom, gloominess, trumpet, trump, trumpet and alarm, in chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. Zephaniah's prophecy makes it clear that the nation of Judah, as well as surrounding countries, will feel the sting of God's wrath. Judah's capital city, Jerusalem, is soundly condemned for its wickedness, rebellion, and injustice. The prophet even betrays God with search lamps as he exposes the corruption of the city and marks it for certain judgment. In spite of its underlying theme of judgment and punishment, the book of Zephaniah closes on a positive note. After God judges the wayward nations, the prophet announces that he will rise up a remnant of his faithful Who will continue to serve as his covenant people in the world. The book ends with a glorious promise for the future, a time when God will quiet you in his love and rejoice over you with singing. Now this is interesting, right? Because it doesn't, the the dictionary doesn't want to identify the remnant, does it? Right? Let's look at, uh, we'll just try. Well, so they may be trying to say it's the church. Okay, now, okay, this one is going to try to find a historical fulfillment that's going to happen somehow under Josiah, but, the, but I would still have major issues with it because those promises seem to go way beyond anything that ever happened under any king. Let's, let's uh, listen to this uh, Bible handbook, all right? Um, Here's a one-sentence summary. You ready? Although Zephaniah prophesied coming judgment against the nations, his main message was against Judah, whose sins were so serious that they would go into exile on the day of the Lord. Are you ready for the last part? But later, they, Judah, would be restored to righteousness. So they identified the, the remnant as whom? Judah. All right? So isn't that interesting? How the different uh, the, the different things take place here, how they're written here. I, I think I think I find it. Okay, all right. So they so they they do they they bring in a historical element and then they go to the future. Clearly, we have to see a future element. Does everyone agree? All right. Now, but here's what I want you to notice. Here's yeah, pay close attention to this. Whenever you look at a resource, what did we just figure out? The, the dictionary doesn't want to identify Judah. They just say covenant people, and you're right, which could be used for a description for the church, right? So isn't it amazing that someone, see, see this is so important. Theology always, theology has a tendency to shape hermeneutics. But how should it work? Should theology ever shape hermeneutics? Hermeneutics should determine your theology, but when you go when you because look any normal person let's be honest when you read Zephaniah you have got to figure out what's going on do you not right we just read that everyone was like okay what's going on so a minute we we grab dictionaries we got one dictionary doesn't even want to identify Judah there isn't it weird they just kind of like hey someone's going to be restored I'm not going to say who but then other ones are saying Israel or Judah clearly so. Like that, but you see, if you, so if you look at one source, what can happen? You go, what's going to determine how you interpret it? The source that you're looking at. And that's what you've got to be so careful with, right? Now, go back to, do this. Start in, um, how far do we want to go back? Just do this. Start in uh, Zephaniah chapter 1. Chapter two and chapter three. Now, if I was doing a Bible, oh man, we're going to run out of time. We're going to have to do this quickly, all right? So I need, your, I need your speed skimming skills, all right? Okay, so Bobby and Diane, you've got chapter one, okay? Stephen and Sarah, you have chapter two. Skim it and see if you can see how many times Judah is mentioned, how they are referenced, just anything about Judah being referenced how they are described, anything. we'll wait and see what you can find. Just notice anything about how they're talked about or anything. When you're done with the chapter, just give me like an amen or something. Okay, Uh, Judah. Okay. That's uh, 2.10. All right. Yeah, verse 7. Okay. And the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. Now, please, uh, this is interesting. Okay, Okay. so we'll look in one in a minute. So I know we're kind of going out of order, but that's okay. Chapter 2, if you want to look in two first. Judah, uh, a remnant is attached to Judah. Do you see it? And 2 7. The and the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed thereupon in the house of Ashkelon. Shall they lie down in the evening? Now you have this uh, lying down and eating kind of concept, right? For the Lord their God shall visit them and turn away their captivity. I have heard the reproach of Moab and the reviling of the children of Ammon, whereby they have reproached my people and magnified themselves against their border. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab, shall be as Sodom and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah. Even the uh, breeding of nettles and salt salt pits and a perpetual desolation, the residue of my people shall spoil them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. Who's the remnant of my people? That's Judah because it's identified just a couple of verses before. Agreed? And then verse 10, they shall have uh, for their pride because they have reproached and magnified themselves against the people of the Lord of hosts. The people of the Lord of hosts would be whom? Judah in the context, right? So clearly, Judah is here. It's described here. Would you agree? Was there anything else in that chapter? So Judah is clearly identified as the remnant. All right and chapter one, how many times is Judah mentioned? Okay. Chapter four, I mean verse four. Right. Well, verse one we had the king of Judah mentioned, but nothing about the people. All right, then uh, verse four, I will stretch out my hand upon Judah and upon all the ha- inhabitants of Jerusalem. Clearly, demonstrating judgment is coming upon whom? Judah, agreed. So Judah is going to be judged. All right now, what else do we have in chapter one? Now Jerusalem is Jerusalem is mentioned in 12 is it not? All right, which is Judah, right? And come to pass at this time I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are settled on their lees and say in their heart the Lord will not do uh, will, the Lord will not do good neither will he do evil, all right? That's kind of an apathetic approach, right? So he's going to bring judgment upon them. Anything else mentioned? I don't think there's anything else, right? Okay. Now, jump to chapter 3. Now, let's look at verse 1. Woe to her that is filthy and polluted to the oppressing city. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. She trusted not in the Lord. She drew not near to... Who do you think that could be referring to? To Judah. And what city? Jerusalem. All right? so, So clearly, Judah and Jerusalem is in store here, right? Her princes within her are roaring. Uh, are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They gnaw, not the bones, till the morrow. Her prophets are light and and, and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. Clearly, this is whom? Yeah, this is Judah, Jerusalem, right? Clearly. There's no way to get around that, yes? The just... Lord is in the midst thereof. He will, he will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring the judgment to light. He falleth, he felleth not, but the unjust knoweth no shame. I, I have cut off the nations. Their uh, towers are desolate. I made their streets waste. Their none passeth by. Their cities are destroyed, so that there is no man, that there is no inhabitant. inhabitant. I said, surely thou, thou will fear me, Thou will receive instruction so their dwelling should not be cut off. However, I punished them that they rose early and corrupted all their doings. Therefore, wait upon me, saith the Lord. Now, who is he telling to wait? Judah and Jerusalem, right? He's telling them to wait. And now, what is he going to do? Wait until the day that I do what? Rise up against, rise up to the prey, for my determination is together the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with fire of my jealousy. For then I will turn to the people a pure language that they may all call upon me, upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. Then he talks about from the rivers of Ethiopia, right? Now he, he talks about, what is he talking about in that verse? And verse 10. What do you think he's referring to in verse 10? Judah, that's been dispersed, right? Those of Judah who've been dispersed. Why have they been dispersed? Because of judgment and captivity, right? This is, we have historical information here, right? And we know who exactly is being referred to, right? Then verse uh, 11. In that day shall they not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride. He immediately now talks about that there's a day coming that what's going to happen. There's going to be restoration. Yes? In fact, we could call it there's going to be restoration, there's going to be salvation, there's going to be purification. Clearly, I'm going to argue the book itself tells me that who this is about. This is not about some unnamed remnant. This is not about some future spiritual Israel. This is about Judah. Whatever, does everyone see that? All right, now, here we go. Let's look at the curriculum and see what happens. We've only got like 10 minutes, so here we go. All right, let's just see what they do here. See if they give us some information. Hey, first look at verses 9 through 13. Now, we've read that. I'm not going to read it again. 9 through 13. Look at verse 11. Do you see a a, a phrase there about something that's holy in verse 11? Depending on your translation. Okay, holy mountain. They say the key word here is holy mountain. That's what the curriculum wants us to see. Holy mountain, all right? They say this is a reference to Zion's sacred hill in Jerusalem, where the temple stood. As the focus of Israel's worship of God, it was the symbol of God's presence among his people. I think we can agree that the temple was connected to God's presence. During the 7th century BC, when Josiah was king over Judah, Zephaniah came on the scene as prophet. King King Josiah's father and grandfather were evil kings. They encouraged the people to chase after idols and false gods. Yet when Josiah took the throne, he desired to turn the people's heart back to the one true God, Yahweh. It is likely that Zephaniah's prophecies of warning, punishment, and restoration were spoken before the reforms of King Josiah had taken root. Throughout the book of Zephaniah, the prophet spoke of God's anger and judgment against Judah, the other nations, and the city of Jerusalem. The people were guilty of chasing after other gods and judgment was due. But the tone of Zephaniah's prophecy makes a major shift in chapter 3, verse 9. Can we all agree it seems to make a major shift? A major shift happens. Now, the major shift isn't, in my estimation, a shift to the church or to me or to you. It's a major shift towards God's attitude towards Judah or to the remnant that he's going to do these things for, right? The refining... Now, this is what... You know, oh, okay. All right, let's listen to how they say this. The refining fire of righteous anger would lead to the purification of the land and the people. In verses 1 through 8, Zephaniah spoke about Jerusalem, but these words of restoration included all the wor- world's people. Hmm. Okay. Okay, that's something we'd have to work on. God's desire is that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve Him with one consent. All right, verse eleven through thirteen gives us a glimpse of what the refinement of God will yield. Shame for our now. Please know what he just know. Please what, what they do here. Everything in that description has been about what they've talked about. Judah, Josiah, the other nations. Watch the subtle transition that they do here. Verse 11 through 13 gives us a glimpse of what the refinement of God will yield. Shame for our past actions will be removed as well as arrogance and haughtiness. It will produce a humble people and a not proud people. God's people will be established as people who understand who is on the throne and they will act and walk according to his truth. They shall do no iniquity doing what is right. They shall see the king who is righteous. They will not speak lies nor have a deceitful tongue for they will live with and serve the God of truth. They're saying that somehow God is going to do this for whom? Us. It's almost frightening because it's making it sound like this is gonna happen now. Guess what they say is they see to the look for as a cross reference. Hebrews 6, which scares me to death. Go to Hebrews chapter 6. I could be it may not be anything scary, but I'm scared to look at it. Hebrews 6. Oh, we're gonna run out of time. Verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay upon the hope that was set before us. That scares me. You know why that scares me? Because it makes it sound like the hope is somehow I'm going to be made to be as godly as these people are being (laughs) described as Zephaniah chapter 3. And if that is my hope, I'm doomed, okay? I don't know why they give that as a cross-reference. Now, I do like the fact that it's saying that God will not lie. That's good. God will keep his promises. They go on to say, especially inviting, they're saying this is what's inviting to, to the author of the curriculum, is the image that they shall feed and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Sheep will not relax if they are afraid and they will not eat if they feel threatened. Yet, here are God's people. Please note, what, what, what are they not using? Judah. They're, they're not using, they're going to make it God's people, right? Here are God's people, his sheep, who have had their fill and are contentedly resting. They can do this because they are resting in the presence of their shepherd. This brings to mind the imagery David painted in Psalm 23, 4. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, etc., etc., etc. God's people will know they have nothing to fear because God is on the throne. Now I get a little nervous here, right? Because they're making it sound like that this can all happen when? Right now. Now go back to Zephaniah 3. Look at that again. Look at the text again. And look at what God said he's going to do here. I want you to look specifically at what's promised here. All right? So we start in verse 9, yes? That's the text? Okay. What's the first promise? Okay. Uh, well, is there anything before that? I, I just want to make sure. I want to I make sure we don't skip anything. Oh, okay, verse So there is a promise, but the promise is judgment. And, 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 and Judas told to wait. So God's going to take care of all your enemies. All right. Now, immediately, we know, wait a minute, guys. Why are we making this about us? Because this is clearly about Israel and all of their enemies are still hating them. So we already know we have a problem. All right. So verse 9. I will turn to the people a pure language that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. I don't know what they do with verse 9. I don't know what they do with verse 9. But okay. Oh, yeah. All the God's people. But it seems like he's like... They don't really say what this language is or anything so far. But let's go to verse 10. All right, So from beyond the rivers, what's going to happen? He's going to bring, they shall bring mine offering. In other words, all these people that have been dispersed are going to do what? They're going to be, they're going to be brought back. So that's a gathering. So but they're, they're, they're not going to do anything with that. All right, now here we go. And the days, the, in that day, now please note, in that day, this is referring to a specific time. Shall thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me? For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty, because my holy mountain. So according to this, the way they're describing this, that now God's going to take away all of our pride. Does pride still exist in the heart of pretty much every believer who's ever existed? Is there any pride in this room? Right? Probably not. Right? Probably probably not. That's why I never have any problems or conflict. Right? Okay. Verse 12. I will leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall not do... Now, here's what I want you to see. Here's the promise. will not do iniquity. What does it mean to not do iniquity? They won't sin. <laughs> okay. All right? Okay. Nor will they speak lies. Clearly... Nobody in Washington. Okay, I'm joking, okay. Nor, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall be made, make them afraid. He literally is like, here's what, this is literally what this, the curriculum is doing. God is going to do this for us. What, now, I got no problem if you're referring to glorification, but first and foremost, this is not about us. This is about Judah. And it even identifies them. Isn't it fascinating that in, 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 in Christian theology we can't even agree when a text literally identifies who it's being spoken of? Right? Like, well, what's the hope of figuring anything out? But here's what they say. Are you ready? Here we go. Note now. Oh, now let. Oh, we may get some help here. Note who this king future kingdom applies to. Now this seems to identify, now they're stating this is going to be in a future kingdom. All right, but here we go. I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The Hebrew word for poor refers to those who are poor and weak and afflicted, refers to those who are in need and physically afflicted. There is no pride or arrogance among them because they know there is nothing in them. They are in desperate need and that recognition draws them to God who shall supply all your need according to the riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now please note, they say that this is, we're not referring to Judah, this is referring to anyone who's made to feel poor or has physically unable. that That's not... Oh man, Okay. Jesus also pointed to the restoration that comes to those. Now, listen. Oh, okay. I'm going to lose it. I'm going to lose it. Okay. I got to take a deep breath. I got to walk away. All right. I almost just threw my iPad across the room. All right. Here we go. Are you ready for this? Oh, boy. Jesus also pointed to the restoration that comes to those who are humble and recognize their need. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meaning that they just took now the Sermon on the Mount and just said that we can do it. But if you read all of the Beatitudes, what would be your conclusion about those Beatitudes? I can't do it because what's one of those Beatitudes? Blessed are the pure... And heart. Blessed those who hunger, thirst after righteousness. We fall so short of that it's not even funny. So, are, is this about a future kingdom? In this refining process, God. Now, see, there's a refining process. In this process, God will remove fear from those who humble themselves before Him. Please note, now, guess whose responsibility they just made it? In this. Isn't this the craziest thing you've ever heard? Go through Zephaniah again. Look at Zephaniah again. 3, 9, and following. To who's doing the action? Oh, well, Okay. Israel is sinning. Okay. Good. Very good point. Okay. God is doing the action. Or am I missing something? In Zephaniah 3.9, all of what God is doing. Hey, what, if, what, was, what is Judah supposed to do in this t- text? Wait. Wait. And then God is going to do what? Everything else. Everything else. And then the, where the first time it mentions afraid, what's the context? What does it say about them not being afraid? Exact words. None shall make them afraid. Why is none going to make them afraid? He's taking them all out. This has nothing to do with them. Look what they say. Look, this is insane. Look what the curriculum says. Are you ready? In the refining process, God will remove fear. That sounds good. Ready? From those who humble themselves before him. When we... Bow to the right one. We do not fear lesser things. God sits on the throne and all fear will ultimately be removed if, 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 if we do the bowing, if we do the humbling. That text does not say that at all. How in the name of bubblegum Can someone write a curriculum that's used in churches all across the United States of America and make a text that's literally about what God will do and turn it into something we do? Oh, man. I I don't even have words for that. And when I was a young Christian, I would have just bought it. I would have just went, oh, yeah, okay, all right, all right. Hey, this, this text is a wonderful promise to us if, if we humble ourselves. God said he's going he's to remove the pride. He's going to remove the pride. Does he say they, that they have to remove the pride? Look at the, what verse. Verse 13, what does he say? I think it's the verse prior to that. He says he's going to remove the pride or the haughty. Does he not say that in the, the verse prior to that? Verse 11. verse 11, okay. What does he say? I will take out of the midst of that rejoice no more be Right. God's going to do it. He doesn't say that, that they have to do it. This is what you just witnessed a gospel, that's gospel passage. That's a gospel passage. God's doing it. And we just see a very well-respected curriculum that's used in evangelical churches all over the place take a gospel passage and just turn it into law. That's insane. And you just watched it happen in real time. Now, what should we take from this in regards to fear? Fear is mentioned how many times in this, in this section? Twice. The first time the fear is mentioned, why, are we not, why, are the, why is Judah not going to have to fear? God's going to get rid of anyone who can make them fear. Right? God's going to remove all the sources of fear. Clearly, that is not a promise for right now, is it? God makes no guarantee he's going to remove anything that's going to cause fear in your life or my life. So this has nothing to do with this. What's the next use? Okay, what does he tell them to fear not of? What does he tell them not to fear? Okay, what does it say at the end of verse 15? Okay, now, again... What, all right. Okay, see evil. But, once again, why are they not to fear? They're not going to see evil. They're not going to see harm because God is removing all those who have oppressed them and harmed them. Okay. And God has taken away that judgment. Right, the judgments he's placed upon them. And he's cast away your enemy. All right, so, first of all... No, right, Well, not yet. They, they, they will get to it in a minute in the curriculum. But at this point, though, they turned it to what we do. But what, here's what I want you to see. What can we learn about fear in regards to these passages? That ultimately, everything that would cause us to fear, enemies, judgment, will all be removed because of what God has done for us, not because of what we do. So, there is no fear... And those who've embraced the gospel, because God is for us, so who can be against us? And there is no judgment coming against us, because God has taken care of all of our judgment. So if we try to add a spiritual element to it, this is only a promise that we have nothing to fear in the gospel, as far as what? Any, now, we can still face physical harm, right? But that we will face no spiritual judgment, and the day will come that all of our enemies will be removed. But this is about Judah. And that is just mind-boggling that they just turned it into what we do. Like, they, they wouldn't even... They would say, this is gospel. This is gospel. This isn't... I, like, I, sometimes I don't even understand when people say gospel. I don't know if they even know what the word means. Okay, but that is an example of something that is gospel that just got turned into law. That's not based on what we do. That's based on what... Christ did so, or what God's going to do for them. So, for us, just so that we can leave with a concept about fear, is in the gospel, we find the ultimate solution to all fear. Because in the gospel, there is no judgment, our sins have been removed with an absolute guaranteed eternity where there will be no one to harm us, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more sickness, there'll be no more death, there'll be no more devil. There'll be no more anything. Okay. That's the future. But for this particular passage, it's for Judah's future. And once again, this has to be for our future. And this would probably, the only way we can even come close, to this has to be the millennial kingdom. Agreed? Right. I understand. If it's not the millennial kingdom, I don't know where in the world you find a fulfillment in this. And it definitely has not happened in the church. All right, there we go. We'll have to stop. I know we went long, but. That's crazy. Isn't that nuts? I think it's crazy. All right. Look well, at we come before you this evening. Thank you just for a place where we can spend the time and hour just walking through, looking at different perspectives and just trying to understand it. Um, I, I'm grateful that we can do that here. We don't have to follow a team. We don't have to follow a, um, any material. We can just look at the text and be as honest with it as possible And wherever it leads us is what we have to believe. We're not bound by anything else. Help us always be committed to the scriptures above anything else. And we ask this in in the name of Jesus and God's people said.